Chapter Two of A Traveler in Wartime. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bologna Times. A Traveler in Wartime by Winston Churchill. Chapter Two. For the student of history who is able to place himself within the stream of evolution, the really important events of today are not taking place on the battle lines, but behind them. The keynote of the new era has been struck in Russia, and as I write these words after the Italian retreat, a second revolution seems possible. For three years one has thought inevitably of 1789, and of the ensuing world conflict out of which issued the beginnings of democracy. History does not repeat itself, yet evolution is fairly consistent. While our attention has been focused on the military drama enacted before our eyes and recorded in the newspapers, another drama, unpremeditated but of vastly greater significance, is unfolding itself behind the stage. Never in the history of the world were generals and admirals, statesmen and politicians, so sensitive to or concerned about public opinion as they are today. From a military point of view, the situation of the Allies at the present writing is far from reassuring. Germany and her associates have the advantage of interior lines, of a single dominating and purposeful leadership, while our five big nations, democracies or semi-democracies, are stretched in a huge ring with precarious connections on land, with the submarine alert on the sea. Much of their territory is occupied. They did not seek the war. They still lack coordination and leadership in waging it. In some of these countries, at least, politicians and statesmen are so absorbed by administrative duties, by national rather than international problems by the effort to sustain themselves that they have little time for allied strategy governments rise and fall familiar names and reputations are juggled about like numbered balls in a shaker come to the top to be submerged again in a new emute there are conferences and conferences without end meanwhile a social ferment is at work in Russia conspicuously, in Italy a little less so, in Germany and Austria undoubtedly, in France and England, and even in our own country, once of the most radical of the world, now become the most conservative. What form will the social revolution take? Will it be unbridled, unguided? Will it run through a long period of anarchy before the fermentation begun shall have been completed, or shall it be handled, in all the nations concerned, by leaders who understand and sympathize with the evolutionary trend, who are capable of controlling it, of taking the necessary international steps of cooperation, in order that it may become secure and mutually beneficial to all? This is an age of cooperation, and in this at least, if not in other matters, the United States of America is in an ideal position to assume the leadership. To a certain extent, one is not prepared to say how far the military and social crises are interdependent, and undoubtedly the military problem rests on the suppression of the submarine. If Germany continues to destroy shipping on the seas, if we are not able to supply our new armies and the Allied nations with food and other things, the increasing social ferment will paralyze the military operations of the Entente. The result of a German victory under such circumstances is impossible to predict, but the chances are certainly not worth running. In a sense, therefore, in a great sense, the situation is up to us in more ways than one, not only to supply wise democratic leadership, but to contribute material aid and brains in suppressing the submarine, and to build ships enough to keep Britain, France, and Italy from starving. We are looked upon by all the Allies, and I believe justly, 
as being a disinterested nation, free from the age-long jealousies of Europe, and we can do much in bringing together and making more purposeful the various elements represented by the nations to whose aid we have come. I had not intended in these early papers to comment, but to confine myself to such of my experiences abroad as might prove interesting and somewhat illuminating, so much I cannot refrain from saying. It is a pleasure to praise where praise is due, and too much cannot be said of the personnel of our naval service, something of which I can speak from intimate personal experience. In these days, in that part of London near the Admiralty, you may chance to run across a tall, erect, and broad-shouldered man in blue uniform with three stars on his collar, striding rapidly along the sidewalk, and sometimes, in his haste, cutting across a street. People smile at him, costermongers, clerks, and shoppers, and whisper among themselves, there goes the American admiral, and he invariably smiles back at them, especially at the children. He is an admiral, every inch a seaman, commanding a devoted loyalty from his staff and from the young men who are scouring the seas with our destroyers. In France, as well as in England, the name Sims is a household word, and if he chose he might be fated every day of the week. He does not choose. He spends long hours instead in the quarters devoted to his administration in Grosvenor Gardens, or in travelling in France and Ireland, supervising the growing forces under his command. It may not be out of place to relate a characteristic story of Admiral Semmes, whose career in our service, whose notable contributions to naval gunnery are too well known to need repetition. Several years ago, on a memorable trip to England, he was designated by the Admiral of the Fleet to be present at a banquet given our sailors in the Guildhall. Of course, the Lord Mayor called upon him for a speech, but Commander Sims insisted that a blue jacket should make the address. What? A blue jacket? exclaimed the Lord Mayor in astonishment. Do blue jackets make speeches in your country? Certainly they do, said Sims. Now there's a fine-looking man over there, a quartermaster on my ship. Let's call on him and see what he has to say. The quartermaster, duly summoned, rose with aplomb and delivered himself of a speech that made the hall ring, that formed the subject of a puzzled and amazed comment by the newspapers of the British capital. Nor was it ever divulged that Commander Sims had foreseen the occasion and had picked out the impressive quartermaster to make a reputation for oratory for the enlisted force. As a matter of fact, it is no exaggeration to add that there were, and are, other non-commissioned officers and enlisted men in the service who could have acquitted themselves equally well. One has only to attend some of their theatrical performances to be assured of it. But to the European mind, our Blue Jacket is still something of an anomaly. He is a credit to our public schools, a fruit of our system of universal education. And he belongs to a service in which are, reconciled, paradoxically, democracy and discipline. One moment you may hear a Blue Jacket talking to an officer as man-to-man, and the next you will see him salute and obey an order implicitly. On a wet and smoky night, I went from the London streets into the brightness and warmth of that refuge for American soldiers and sailors, the Eagle Hut, as the YMCA is called. The place was full, as usual, but my glance was at once attracted by three strapping, intelligent-looking men in sailor blouses playing pool in a corner. I simply can't get used to the fact that people like that are ordinary sailors said the lady in charge to me, as we leaned against the soda fountain. They're a continual pride and delight to us Americans here, always so willing to help when there's anything to be done, and so interesting to talk to. 
When I suggested that her ideas of the Navy must have been derived from Pinafore, she laughed. "'I can't imagine using a cat-o'-nine-tails on them,' she exclaimed. "'And neither could I. I heard many similar comments. They are indubitably American, these sailors, youngsters, with the stamp of our environment on their features, keen and self-reliant. I am not speaking now only of those who have enlisted since the war, but of those others, largely from the small towns and villages of our Middle West, who, in the past dozen years or so, have been recruited by an interesting and scientific system which is the result of the genius of our naval recruiting officers. In the files at Washington may be seen, carefully tabulated, the several reasons for their enlisting. Some have friends in the service. Others wish to perfect themselves in a trade, to complete their education, or see the world, our adventurous spirit. And they are seeing it. They are also engaged in the most exciting and adventurous sport, with the exception of aerial warfare, ever devised or developed, that of hunting down in all weathers over the wide spaces of the Atlantic those modern sea monsters that prey upon the Allied shipping. For the super-dreadnought is reposing behind the nets, the battle-cruiser ignominiously laying mines, and for the present, at least, until some wizard shall invent a more effective method of annihilation. Victory over Germany depends primarily on the airplane and the destroyer. At three o'clock one morning, I stood on the crowded deck of an Irish mailboat, watching the full moon riding over Holyhead Mountain and shimmering on the Irish Sea. A few hours later, in the early light, I saw the green hills of Killarney against a washed and clearing sky the mud flats beside the railroad shining like purple enamel. All the forenoon, in the train, I traveled through a country bathed in translucent colors, a country of green pastures dotted over with white sheep, of banked hedges and perfect trees, of shadowy blue hills in the high distance. It reminded one of nothing so much as a stained-glass window depicting some delectable land of plenty and peace. And it was Ireland. When at length I arrived at the station of the port for which I was bound, and which the censor does not permit me to name, I caught sight of the figure of our admiral on the platform. And the fact that I was in Ireland, and not in Emmanuel's land, was brought home to me by the jolting drive we took on an outside car. The admiral perched precariously over one wheel, and I over the other. Winding up the hill by narrow roads, we reached the gates of the Admiralty House. The house sits, as it were, in the emperor's seat of the amphitheatre of the town, overlooking the panorama of a perfect harbour. A ring of emerald hills is broken by a little gap to seaward, and in the centre is a miniature emerald isle. The ships lying at anchor seem like children's boats in a pond. To the right, where a river empties in, were scattered groups of queer, rakish craft, each with four slanting pipes and a tiny flag floating from her halyards, a flag, as the binoculars revealed, of crimson bars and stars on a field of blue. These were our American destroyers, and in the midst of them, swinging to the tide, were the big mother-ships we have sent over to nurse them when— after many days and nights of hazardous work at sea, they have brought their flock of transports and merchantmen safely to port. This mothering by repair ships, which are merely huge machine shops afloat, this trick of keeping destroyers tuned up and constantly ready for service, has inspired much favorable comment from our allies in the British service. It is an instance of our national adaptability, learned from an experience on long coasts where navy yards are not too handy. Few landsmen understand how delicate an instrument the destroyer is. A service so hazardous, demanding as it does such qualities as the ability to make instantaneous decisions and powers of mental and physical endurance, a service so irresistibly attractive to the young 
and adventurous, produces a type of officer quite unmistakable. The day I arrived in London from France, seeking a characteristically English meal, I went to Simpson's in the Strand, where I found myself seated by the side of two very junior officers of the British Navy. It appeared that they were celebrating what was left of a precious leave. At a neighboring table they spied two of our officers, almost equally youthful. "'Let's have em over,' suggested one of the Britishers, and they were had over. He raised his glass. "'Here's how, as you say in America,' he exclaimed, "'you destroy a chaps a certainly top hole.' And then he added, with a blush, "'I say, I hope you don't think I'm cheeking you.' I saw them afloat. I saw them coming ashore in that Irish port, these young destroyer captains, after five wakeful nights at sea, weather-bitten, clear-eyed, trained down to the last ounce. One, with whom I had played golf on the New England hills, carried his clubs in his hand and invited me to have a game with him. Another, who apologized for not being dressed at noon on Sunday, he had made the harbor at three that morning, was taking his racket out of its case preparing to spend the afternoon on the hospitable courts of Admiralty House with a fellow captain and two British officers. He was ashamed of his late rising, but when it was suggested that some sleep was necessary, he explained that, on the trip just ended, it wasn't only the submarines that kept him awake. When these craft get jumping about in a seaway, you can't sleep even if you want to. He who has had the experience with them knows the truth of this remark. Incidentally, though he did not mention it, this young captain was one of three who had been recommended by the British Admiral to his government from the Distinguished Service Order. The captain's report, which I read, is terse and needs to be visualized. There is simply a statement of the latitude and longitude, the time of day, the fact that the wave of a periscope was sighted at 1,500 yards by the quartermaster, first class, on duty, general quarters rung, the executive officer signals full speed ahead, the commanding officer takes charge and maneuvers for position, and then something happens which the censor may be fussy about mentioning. At any rate, oil and other things rise to the surface of the sea, and the Germans are minus another submarine. The chief machinist mate, however, comes in for special mention. It seems that he ignored the latter and literally fell down the hatch, dislocating his shoulder but getting the throttle wide open within five seconds. In this town, facing the sea, is a street lined with quaint houses painted in yellows and browns and greens, and under each house the kind of a shop that brings back to the middle-aged delectable memories of extreme youth and nickels to spend. Up and down that street on a bright Saturday afternoon may be seen our Middle Western Jackies chumming with the British sailors and Tommies, or flirting with the Irish girls, or gazing through the little panes of the show windows, whose enterprising proprietors have imported from the States a popular brand of chewing gum to make us feel more at home. In one of these shops, where I went to choose a picture postcard, I caught sight of an artistic display of a delicacy I had thought long obsolete, the everlasting gumdrop. But when I produced a shilling, the shopkeeper shook his head. Sure, every day the sailors are wanting to buy them of me, but it's for ornament. I'm keeping them, he said. There's no more to be had till the war will be over. Eight years they're here now, and you wouldn't get a tooth in them, sir. So I wandered out again, joined the admiral, and inspected the Blue Jackets Club by the water's edge. Nothing one sees, perhaps, is so eloquent of the change that has taken place in the life and fabric of our navy. If you are an enlisted man, here in this commodious group of buildings, you can get a good shore meal and entertain your friends among the allies. You may sleep in a real bed instead of a hammock. You may play pool or see a moving picture show or witness a vaudeville worthy of professionals like that recently given in honor of the visit of the admiral of our Atlantic fleet. A band of thirty pieces furnished the music 
and in the opinion of the jackies one feature alone was lacking to make the entertainment a complete success the new drop curtain had failed to arrive from london i happened to be present when this curtain was first unrolled and beheld spread out before me a most realistic presentation of little old new york seen from the north river towering against blue american skies and though i have never been over fond of new york that curtain and that place gave me a sensation such is the life of our officers and sailors in these strange times that have descended upon us five to eight days of vigilance of hardship and danger in short of war and then three days of relaxation and enjoyment in clubs on golf courses and tennis courts barring the time it takes to clean ship and paint there need be no fear that the war will be neglected it is eminently safe to declare that our service will be true to its traditions part three dogged does it ought to be added to dieu et mon droit and other devices of england on a day when i was lunching with mr lloyd george in the dining-room at ten downing street that looks out over the horse guards parade the present premier with a characteristic gesture flung out his hand toward the portrait of a young man in the panel over the mantel it was of the younger pitt who had taken his meals and drunk his port in this very room in that other great war a hundred years ago the news of austerlitz brought to him during his illness is said to have killed him but england undismayed fought on for a decade and won mr lloyd george in spite of burdens even heavier than pitt's happily retains his health and his is the indomitable spirit characteristic of the new britain as well as of the old for it is a new britain one sees mr lloyd george is prime minister of a transformed britain a britain modernized and democratized like the englishman who when he first witnessed a performance of uncle tom's cabin cried out how very unlike the home life of our dear queen the american who lunches in downing street is inclined to exclaim how different from lord north and palmerston we have i fear been too long accustomed to interpret britain in terms of these two ministers and of what they represented to us of the rule of a george the third or of an inimical aristocracy three out of the five men who form the war cabinet of an empire are of what would once have been termed an humble origin one was if i am not mistaken born in nova scotia general smuts unofficially associated with this council not many years ago was in arms against britain in south africa and the prime minister himself is the son of a welsh tailor a situation that should mollify the most exacting and implacable of our anti-british democrats i listened to many speeches and explanations of the prejudice that existed in the mind of the dyed-in-the-wool american against england and the reason most frequently given was the school-book reason our histories kept the feeling alive now there is no doubt that the histories out of which we were taught made what psychologists would call action patterns or complexes in our brains just as the school-books have made similar complexes in the brains of german children and prepared them for this war but after all there was a certain animus behind the histories boiled down the sentiment was one against the rule of a hereditary aristocracy and our forefathers had it long before the separation took place the middle western farmer has no prejudice against france because france is a republic the french are lovable and worthy of all the sympathy and affection we can give them but britain is still nominally a monarchy and our patriot thinks of its people very much as the cowboy used to regard citizens of new york they all lived on fifth avenue for the cowboy the residents of the dreary side streets simply did not exist we have been wont to think 
of all the British as aristocrats, while they have returned the compliment by visualizing all Americans as plutocrats, despite the fact that one-tenth of our population is said to own nine-tenths of all our wealth. But the war will change that. It is already changing it. Tout comprendre, c'est tout pardonner. We have been soaked in the same common law, literature, and traditions of liberty, or of chaos, as one likes. Whether we all be of British origin or not, it is the mind that makes the true patriot, and there is no American so dead as not to feel a thrill when he first sets foot on British soil. Our school teachers felt it when they began to travel some twenty years ago, and the thousands of our soldiers who passed through on their way to France are feeling it today and writing home about it. Our soldiers and sailors are being cared for and entertained in England, just as they would be cared for and entertained at home. So are their officers. Not long ago, one of the finest townhouses in London was donated by the owner for an American officers' club. The funds were raised by contributions from British officers, and the club was inaugurated by the King and Queen and Admiral Sims. Hospitality and goodwill have gone much further than this. Anyone who knows London will understand the sacredness of those private squares, surrounded by proprietary residences, where every tree and every blade of grass has been jealously guarded from intrusion for a century or more. And of all these squares, that of St. James is perhaps the most exclusive, and yet it is precisely in St. James there is to be built the first of those hotels, designed primarily for the benefit of American officers, where they can get a good room for five shillings a night and breakfast at a reasonable price. One has only to sample the wartime prices of certain hostelries to appreciate the value of this. On the first of four unforgettable days, which I was a guest behind the British lines in France, the officer who was my guide stopped the motor in the street of an old village beside a courtyard surrounded by ancient barns. "'There are some of your Americans,' he remarked. I had recognized them, not by their uniforms, but by their type. Despite their costumes, which were negligible, they were eloquent of college campuses in every one of our eight and forty states. Lean, thin-hipped, alert. The persistent rains had ceased. A dazzling sunlight made that beautiful countryside as bright as a colored picture postcard, but a riotous cold gale was blowing. Yet all wore cotton trousers that left their knees as bare as a Highlander's kilts. Above these, some had on sweaters, others brown cocky tunics, from which I gathered that they belonged to the officers' training corps. They were drawn up on two lines, facing each other with fixed bayonets, a grim look on their faces that would certainly have put any Hun to flight. Between the files stood an unmistakable gippling sergeant, with a crimson face and a bristling little chestnut moustache, talking like a machine-gun. "'Now then, not too ladylike. There's a Bosch in front of you. Run him through. Now then.' The lines surged forward. Out went the bayonets, first the long thrust, and then the short, and then a man's gun was seized, and by a swift backward twist of the arm he was made helpless. "'Do you feel it?' asked the officer, as he turned to me. "'I did.' "'Up and down your spine,' he added, and I nodded. "'These chaps will do,' he said. He had been through that terrible battle of the Somme, and he knew. So had the sergeant. Presently came a resting spell. One of the squad approached me, whom I recognized as a young man I had met in the Harvard Union.' If you write about this, he said, just tell our people that we're going to take that sergeant home with us when the war is over. He's too good to lose. Part 4 It is trite to observe that democracies are organized, if indeed they are organized at all, not for war, but for peace. And nowhere is this fact more apparent than in Britain. Even while the war is in progress, 
has that internal democratic process of evolution been going on, presaging profound changes in the social fabric. And these changes must be dealt with by statesmen, must be guided with one hand while the war is being prosecuted with the other. The task is colossal. In no previous war have the British given more striking proof of their inherent quality of doggedness. Greatness, as Confucius said, does not consist in never falling, but in rising every time you fall. The British speak with appalling frankness of their blunders. They are fighting, indeed, for the privilege of making blunders, since out of blunders arise new truths and discoveries not contemplated in German philosophy. America must now contribute what Britain and France, with all their energies and resources and determination, have hitherto been unable to contribute. It must not be men, money, and material alone, but some quality that America has had in herself during her century and a half of independent self-realization. Mr. Chesterton, in writing about the American Revolution, observes that the real case for the colonists is that they felt that they could be something which England would not help them to be. It is, in fact, the only case for separation. What may be called the English tradition of democracy, which we inherit, grows through conflicts and differences, through experiments and failures and successes, toward an intellectualized unity. Experiments by states, experiments by individuals, a widely spread development, and new contributions to the whole. Democracy has arrived at the stage when it is ceasing to be national and selfish. It must be said of England, in her treatment of her colonies subsequent to her revolution, that she took this greatest of all her national blunders to heart. As a result, Canada and Australia and New Zealand have sent their sons across the seas to fight for an empire that refrains from coercion while, thanks to the policy of the British liberals, which was the expression of the sentiment of the British nation, we have the spectacle today of a Botha and a Smuts fighting under the Union Jack. And how about Ireland? England has blundered there, and she admits it freely. There exist in England who cry out for the coercion of Ireland, and who at times have almost had their way. But to do this, of course, would be a surrender to the German contentions, an acknowledgment of the wisdom of the German methods against which she is protesting with all her might. Democracy, apparently, must blunder on until that question, too, is solved. Part 5 Many of the picturesque features of the older England that stir us by their beauty, and by the sense of stability and permanence they convey, will no doubt disappear or be transformed. I am thinking of the great estates, some of which date from Norman times. I am thinking of the aristocracy, which we Americans repudiated in order to set up a plutocracy instead. Let us hope that what is fine in it will be preserved, for there is much. By the theory of the British Constitution, that unwritten but very real document, in return for honors, emoluments, and titles, the burden of government has hitherto been thrown on a class, nor can it be said that they have been untrue to their responsibility. That class developed a tradition and held fast to it, and they had a foreign policy that guided England through centuries of greatness. Democracy, too, must have a foreign policy, a tradition of service, a trained, if not hereditary, group to guide it through troubled waters. Even in an intelligent community there must be leadership, and, if the world will no longer tolerate the old theories, a tribute may at least be paid to those who from conviction upheld them, who ruled, perhaps in affluence, yet were also willing to toil, and, if need be, to die for the privilege. One Saturday afternoon, after watching for a while the boys playing fives and football and romping over the green lawns of Eton, on my way to the headmaster's rooms I paused in one of the ancient quads. 
My eye had been caught by a long column of names posted there, printed in heavy black letters. Etona non immemora. Every week many new names are added to those columns. On the walls of the chapel and in other quads and passages may be found tablets and inscriptions in memory of those who have died for England and the Empire in bygone wars. I am told that the proportion of Etonians, of killed to wounded, is greater than that of any other public school, which is saying a great deal. They go back across the channel and back again until their names appear on the last and highest honor list of the school and nation. In one of the hospitals I visited lay a wounded giant who had once been a truckman in a little town in Kent. Incidentally, in common with his neighbors, he had taken no interest in the war, which had seemed as remote to him as though he had lived in North Dakota. One day a zeppelin dropped a bomb on that village, whereupon the able-bodied males enlisted to a man and he with them. A subaltern in his company was an Eton boy. We just couldn't think of him as an officer, sir. In the camps he used to play with us like a child. And then we went to France, and one night when we was wet to the skin and the Bosches was dropping shell all around us, we got the word. It was him leaped over the top first of all, shouting back at us to come on. He tumbled right back and died in my arms, he did, as I was climbing up after him. I shan't ever forget him. As you travel about in these days, you become conscious, among the people you meet, of a certain bewilderment. A static world and a static order are dissolving, and in England that order was so static as to make the present spectacle the more surprising. Signs of the disintegration of the old social strata were not lacking. Indeed, in the earlier years of the twentieth century, when labor members and North Country radicals began to invade Parliament, but the cataclysm of this war has accelerated the process. In the muddy trenches of Flanders and France, a new comradeship has sprung up between officers and Tommies, while time-honored precedent has been broken by the necessity of giving thousands of commissions to men of merit who do not belong to the officer caste. At the Haymarket Theatre I saw a fashionable audience wildly applaud a play in which the local tailor becomes a major general and returns home to marry the daughter of the lord of a mayor whose clothes he used to cut before the war. The Age of Great Adventure were the words used by Mr. H. G. Wells to describe this epoch as we discussed it. And a large proportion of the descendants of those who have governed England for centuries are apparently imbued with the spirit of this adventure, even though it may spell the end of their exclusive rule. As significant of the social minglings of elements which in the past never exchanged ideas or points of view, I shall describe a weekend party at a large country house of liberal complexion. On the Thames, I have reason to believe it fairly typical. The owner of this estate holds an important position in the foreign office, and the hostess has, by her wit and intelligent grasp of affairs, made an enviable place for herself. On her right, at luncheon, on Sunday, was a labor leader, the head of one of the most powerful unions in Britain, and next him sat a member of one of the oldest of England's titled families. The two were on terms of Christian names. The group included two or three women, a sculptor and an educator, another foreign office official who has made a reputation since the beginning of the war, and finally an employer of labor the chairman of the biggest shipbuilding company in England. That a company presenting such a variety of interests should have been brought together in the fresco dining room of that particular house is noteworthy. The thing could happen nowhere save in the England of today. At first the talk was general, 
ranging over a number of subjects from that of the personality of certain politicians to the conduct of the war and the disturbing problem raised by the conscientious objector little by little however the rest of us became silent to listen to a debate which had begun between the labor leader and the shipbuilder on the labor question it is not my purpose here to record what they said needless to add that they did not wholly agree but they were much nearer to agreement than one would have thought possible what was interesting was the open-mindedness with which on both sides the argument was conducted and the fact that it could seriously take place then and there for the subject of it had long been the supreme problem in the lives of both these men their feelings concerning it must at times have been tinged with bitterness yet they spoke with courtesy and restraint and though each maintained his contentions he was quick to acknowledge a point made by the other as one listened one was led to hope that a happier day is perhaps at hand when such things as complexes and convictions will disappear the types of these two were in striking contrast the labor leader was stocky chestnut-colored vital possessing the bulldog quality of the british self-made man combined with a natural wit sharpened in the arena that often startled the company into an appreciative laughter the shipbuilder on the other hand was one of those spare and hard englishmen whom no amount of business cares will induce to neglect the exercise of his body the obligation at all times to keep fit square-rigged as it were with a lean face and a wide moustache accentuating a square chin occasionally a gleam of humour a ray of idealism lighted his practical grey eyes each of these two had managed rather marvellously to triumph over early training by self-education the labour leader who had had his first lessons in life from injustices and hard knocks and the shipbuilder who had overcome the handicap of the public school tradition and of manchester economics yes titles and fortunes must go remarked our hostess with a smile as she rose from the table and led the way out on the sunny stone-flagged terrace below us was a wide parterre whose flower-beds laid out by a celebrated landscape gardener in the days of the stuarts were filled with vegetables the day was like our new england indian summer though the trees were still heavy with leaves and a gossamer blue veil of haze stained the hills between which the shining river ran if the social revolution or evolution takes place one wonders what will become of this long-cherished beauty i venture to dwell upon one more experience of that weekend party the friday evening of my arrival i was met at the station not by a limousine with a chauffeur and footman but by a young woman with a taxicab one of the many reminders that a war is going on london had been reeking in a green yellow fog but here the mist was white and through it i caught glimpses of the silhouettes of stately trees in a park and presently saw the great house with its clock tower looming up before me a fire was crackling in the hall and before it my hostess was conversing amusedly with a well-known sculptor a sculptor typical of the renaissance times large full-blooded with vigorous opinions on all sorts of matters a lecturer is coming down from london to talk to the wounded in the amusement hall of the hospital our hostess informed us and you both must come and speak too the three of us got into the only motor of which the establishment now boasts a little runabout using a minimum of petrol and she guided us rapidly by devious roads through the fog until a blur of light proclaimed the presence of a building one of some score or more built on the golf course by the british government i have not space here too described that hospital which is one of the best in england but it must be observed that its excellence and the happiness of its inmates 
are almost wholly due to the efforts of the lady who now conducted us across the stage of the amusement hall, where all the convalescents who could walk, or who could be rolled thither in chairs, were gathered. The lecturer had not arrived, but the lady of the manor seated herself at the speaker's table, singling out Scotch wits in the audience, for whom she was more than a match while the sculptor and i looked on and grinned and resisted her blandishments to make speeches when at last the lecturer came he sat down informally on the table with one foot hanging in the air and grinned too at her bantering but complimentary introduction it was then i discovered for the first time that he was one of the best educational experts of that interesting branch of the british government the department of reconstruction whose business it is to teach the convalescents the elements of social and political science this was not to be a lecture he told them but a debate in which every man must take a part and his first startling question was this why should mr lloyd george instead of getting five thousand pounds a year for his services as prime minister receive any more than a common labourer the question was a poser. The speaker folded his hands and beamed down at them. He seemed fairly to radiate benignity. Now we must be afraid of him, just because he seems to be intelligent, declared our hostess. This sally was greeted with spasmodic laughter. Her eyes flitted from bench to bench, yet met nothing save averted glances. Jock! Where are you, Jock? Why don't you speak up? You've never been down before. More laughter, and craning of necks for the jocks. This appeared to be her generic name for the vita. But the jocks remained obdurately modest. The prolonged silence did not seem in the least painful to the lecturer, who thrust his hand in his pocket and continued to beam. He had learned how to wait. And at last his patience was rewarded. A middle-aged soldier, with a very serious manner, arose hesitatingly, with encouraging noises from his comrades. "'It's not Mr. Lloyd George I'm worrying about, sir,' he said. "'All I want is enough for the missus and me. I had trouble to get that before the war.' Cries of, "'Here, here!' "'Why did you have trouble?' inquired the lecturer, mildly. "'The wages was too low.' And why were the wages too low? You got me there. I hadn't thought. But isn't it your business as a voter to think? asked the lecturer. That's why the government is sending me here. To start you thinking. To remind you that it is you soldiers who will have to take charge of this country and run it after the war is over. And you won't be able to do that unless you think, and think straight. We've never been taught to think, was the illuminating reply. And if we do think, we've never been educated to express ourselves, same as you, shouted another man, in whom excitement had overcome timidity. I'm here to help you educate yourselves, said the lecturer. But first, let's hear any ideas you may have on the question I asked you. There turned out to be plenty of ideas, after all. An opinion was ventured that Mr. Lloyd George served the nation, not for money, but from public spirit. A conservative insisted that ability should be rewarded and rewarded well, whereupon ensued one of the most enlightening discussions, not only as a revelation of intelligence, but of a complexes and obsessions pervading many of the minds in whose power lies the ultimate control of democracies. One, for instance, declared that if every man went to church proper of a Sunday and minded his own business, the country would get along well enough. He was evidently of the opinion that there was too much thinking and not enough of what he would have termed religion. Gradually, the audience split up into liberals and conservatives, and the liberals noticeably were the younger men, who had had the advantages of better board schools, who had formed fewer complexes, and had had less time in which to get them set. 
Of these, a Canadian made a plea for the American system of universal education, whereupon a combative stand-patter declared that every man wasn't fit to be educated, that the American plan made only for discontent. "'Look at them!' he exclaimed. "'They're never satisfied to stay in their places!' This provoked laughter, but it was too much for the sculptor and for me. We both broke our vows and made speeches in favor of equality and mental opportunity, while the lecturer looked on and smiled. Mr. Lloyd George and his salary were forgotten. By some subtle art of the chairman, the debate had been guided to the very point where he had from the first intended to guide it, to the burning question of our day. Education is the true foundation of democracy. Perhaps, after all, this may be our American contribution to the world's advance. As we walked homeward through the fog, I talked to him of Professor Dewey's work and its results. While he explained to me the methods of the Reconstruction Department, "'Out of every audience like that we get a group and form a class,' he said. "'They're always a bit backward at first, just as they were to-night, but they grow very keen. We have a great many classes already started, and we see to it that they are provided with textbooks and teachers. Oh, no, it's not propaganda, he added, in answer to my query. All we do is to try to give them the facts in, in such a way as to make them able to draw their own conclusions and join any political party that they choose just so they join one intelligently. I must add that before Sunday was over he had organized his class and arranged for their future instruction. End of chapter 2